welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Matamor Cronin. I'm Brett Ewer. And today we're discussing the future of the U.S. economy. That means we'll explore the impact that COVID-19 is having on jobs, income, and various business sectors. We'll also discuss potential solutions, including a government stimulus package that's currently in the works. And at the end, as always, we'll predict the worst case, best case, and most likely future scenario for the U.S. economy as a whole. So, Brett, there's a lot that I want to ask you about this and get your thoughts. But first, I just want to get a sense for your personal uh, quarantine situation. So you started out in D.C. and now you're in the Cape. And what's it been like in those places? What has the sentiment been and what's your personal quarantine experience been like? Uh it's pretty different. I mean, beyond just being in a, you know, rural exurban area right now, um, and DC being a city, I think that kind of encapsulates it is that, you know, in, in a city, when I would go for a walk or a run, um, all of us would, you know, my, my fellow travelers, we would look at each other and maintain that six feet of difference <laughs> very, or, and if you didn't, um, you would get the nastiest glare. Mm. Um, the supermarket lines here are much shorter. Uh, people are just generally friendlier because it's more rural, you know, right. even if it's in the Northeast. Um, it's a lot nicer up here. I'm very fortunate. And would you say people are taking it seriously? Yes. That's good. Yeah. Yes. I, uh, I am part of a musical performing group, uh, a large one, and we canceled our concert, which was supposed to happen today. Um, a mm. large concert with newly commissioned pieces and everything in the National Cathedral. We completely canceled, uh, and we've canceled the rest of the season, as have other similar groups. Uh, down there, it's practically a ghost town wow. if you go to places. Yeah. And have you? Do you know anyone personally who's contracted COVID nineteen yet, or not yet? Yeah, one of my friends. Um, he it's unclear because he's still waiting test results, but, mm -hmm. um, uh, someone from the Washington state delegation, uh, one of the people working for a Washington Senator or representative, uh, that I, I'm aware that this person has it. Uh, and my friend, uh, knows this person through his girlfriend. So, right. so it's, pretty easy for it to spread, at least based on personal experience mm -hmm. um, or personal knowledge. Uh, yeah, it's a little scary. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I hadn't known anyone, but I just uh, the other night, my sister started really having some chest pains and was like, you know, had the cough symptoms and the fever. And so she felt like, oh, shit, I might be getting this. So she went to the ER at like 3 a.m., and when she got there, they basically were like, well, your oxygen supply is actually still pretty good. You know, it's not like you're gasping for air or anything. And you probably have COVID-19, but mm. we only admit people who are literally like need air to breathe, like are probably not going to make it without air. And so we're not going to admit you. And we only test people who we admit. So we're not going to be able to actually test you for COVID-19. So she's pretty sure she has it. Uh, hope, you know, fortunately, it seems like it's more of a mild or medium case rather than severe. But it's pretty amazing that, you know, she went to Cedar sinai which is 
one of the world's most respected hospitals and she couldn't get a test, she couldn't get admitted. So just that level of like seeing it that close to me, it, it makes it really feel more real to know that we're not nearly as prepared as we should be for this. Yeah, I mean, I think if there's one thing to strip the veneer entirely off of, you know, our day to day, you know, we kind of just go about our day to day, not thinking about like our supply lines and whether mm -hmm. our medical system works usually. Um, but if there's anything to strip the veneer off of that conception for most people, uh, it's something like this. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to strip that veneer off as it relates to the economy. So and I want to get your sense of how bad you think it really will be. And maybe I'll lead off with just some statistics so we can just get a sense for what some other experts are thinking and then get your response. So Moody's has estimated that nearly half of all American jobs are currently at risk. One in five workers say they've been fired or have had their hours slashed since the outbreak occurred. The average small business only has enough cash on hand to operate for 27 days without going under. Almost 40% of American adults would not be able to cover a $400 emergency expense. The cost of COVID-19 treatment for one woman who was uninsured was $35,000. And, you know, people are going to need to pay their rent in about a week, you know, in April. Who knows how many months it'll go on. Tax day is April 15th. It's now been pushed to July 15th, but you still need to save for taxes. It's unclear how long this will last. You know, minimum, it's four to six more weeks. Some experts say it could be as long as 18 months if we need to wait for a vaccine and a vaccine takes that long. So I'd just like to get a sense, uh, you know, high level sense for you, from you. How bad do, do you think this is going to be on the U.S. economy, do you think it's something that we'll be able to rebound quickly from? Or do you think that we really are at risk of falling into a deep recession or, or possibly even a, a depression? I think what this exposes is that the fundamentals of our economy, like the goods and services that we both consume and produce, are I think those are stable. Those are fine. You know, we're a service economy. Um, so we largely provide, well, services. I mean, mm -hmm. some of those are extremely vulnerable. Like if you are a server or a waiter, you work in the hospitality industry, uh, your job has just been wiped out overnight. Mm -hmm. uh, or if you work at a gym, for example, yeah. uh, anything involving close contact that isn't strictly medical, uh, you've been completely wiped away. That being said, uh, with a service industry, with a service economy, um, if you are a consultant or if you are, you know, doing legal work or if you are working at a call center, you can easily outsource these services to your house. You can work from home. Mm -hmm. uh, not to not to preview this too much, but one of the positives I hope to see from all of this, if it's fully resolved, is that working from home just becomes more of a standard. But right. that's that's. Uh, but in terms of the, in terms of the, uh, you know, immediate effects, I think we'll see a, a pretty strong hit to, um, you know, that that in-person mm -hmm. economy. It kind of reminds me of so the you know Fred Wilson is this really respected guy in the tech startup world, 
and he released this really awesome blog post where he talks about this and he says, I believe this downturn will see a greater number of winners and losers than most of the downturns I have lived through. This is because we are already in a pretty meaningful transition from an industrial physical economy to a knowledge digital economy. And the very nature of this macro event is accelerating that transition in many ways. So it, to your point, it does seem like we are accelerating the transition to a knowledge digital economy. And for people who are able to work from home and do their job from home, this hasn't had nearly as big of an impact as people who actually need to be in the office doing what they do, you know, whether that's because they're a bartender, a waiter, hotel staff, uh, you know, work at a gym, like you said. So it'd be interesting just to talk a little bit about you know, for lack of a better term, who are the winners and who are the losers in this type of situation? And that may help us sort of think about what the future of the economy could look like. So let's start with the winners. So what are the business sectors that will survive and maybe even thrive during this crisis? I'll start off with just one, which, you know, you mentioned, which is people working from home is become it's becoming less of a stigma. So the first winner I would say is is moms. Cuz if you're a working mom, it used to be like rewind your mind to 6 months ago, it used to be that companies would, you know, fire or cut women once they become pregnant because they weren't able to be in the office as much, they had to go drop their kids off, they had to do this and that. Now, yeah. it seems like that whole mentality is out the window. Like if you're good at your job and you can do it from home and whatever you do in between your tasks, whether that's taking care of the kids, it seems like way less of a stigma. So that's one winner. I'm curious if you have thoughts on any any others. Yeah, I mean, I agree. But I want to add to your point is that there's a winner there. We should also acknowledge that, that for those who are losing, which we'll get to, they won't be able to that form of discrimination will still exist. Mm -hmm. If you're, you know, a woman who has to, who works an industrial job or a service job and you have to take time off to go. Yeah, you know, that's true. That, that, you know, I think what's likely to happen is there's going to be an even more stark divide between, uh, people that are then able to afford that quote unquote luxury, right. Mm -hmm. Of being able to take care of your kids without getting a motherhood or fatherhood penalty to your salary and your earnings over over your career, um, they will largely benefit. But people that you know are part of the gig economy, for example, are going to suffer greatly. Right. Um, in terms of other winners, I mean, if you want me to just list off like the exact stocks, man, uh, <laughs> you know, te tech and telecom—they're going to do great. Yeah, Zoom uh, is way up. Something I've Slack, been on Microsoft Teams. Oh yeah, I mean all of those. You know any of those sort of nascent i mean microsoft teams i don't use but i assume that that's going to get a lot more play um generally and i know this is broad but anyone in the knowledge economy or you know the i don't want to call it mental services economy but th that's effectively what you're providing is you're providing right. your product is thinking about a thing rather than producing right. doing a thing you know um, yeah they will benefit immensely. But I think on the whole, it's horrible for most <laughs> for most industries. I mean, there are very few winners in all of this. That's why uh, that's why this upcoming bailout relief package is huge. Right. So. Yeah. So I'll, I'll list a few others. So 
interestingly, food delivery. So Blue Apron was really struggling as a stock. Their stock is now up 70% since this occurred, Easy. which is pretty big. We already talked about, you know, Zoom, Slack. It, it's interesting because well, obviously gaming is also up, like Oculus sold out. Uh, <laughs> Nintendo Switch has been like crashing because so many people are on their game servers. Uh, GameStop got some backlash because they told their employees to keep stores open, even though they had been ordered to close them. Um, interestingly, home office furniture has been up. Like someone noted that Amazon searches for desk, just the word mm. desk is way up because people now realize they need to do their job from home. Um, and I would say like small scrappy startups are probably better able to get through this than medium or bigger startups that aren't able to variableize their costs as much. And I think that's sort of like a trend that, that I'm seeing is that the really big companies that have a lot of cash, have a lot of market dominance, like think of like Amazon or Walmart or even Exxon, like they'll be fine. Yeah. But all of like the medium, medium, large companies that have a lot of overhead that they can't just immediately uh, you know, stop paying uh, and aren't quite big enough to be able to see this through. Like those are going to be some of the ones that are going to really uh, struggle. And, you know, there's this other trend that there's this great article about called the Amazonification of the economy mm. where, you know, basically it's like you can imagine right now a lot of restaurants, bars, local shops are closing maybe for maybe permanently and then in the meantime, you know, that's being sucked up by a lot of these big behemoths that, you know, maybe, you know, certain food companies or restaurants really have figured out delivery and they have a really good Yelp presence and they've got their own app where you can order it. And they're like a really future tech sort of restaurant. And you can think about this for any sort of sector, whereas the typical mom and pop where they like, you know, remember your name as a barista and like you got to mm. call them to do delivery. There's no like app ordering. Those companies are, are those are probably going to go away. So to a large extent, it seems like we're moving towards more of like an automated online sort of Amazonified Amazonified <laughs> economy. No, I think there's, there's two points I, I want to make here is that I think it's what's interesting is that we have the acceleration of um you know, like you say, businesses that have large overhead, medium, medium, large businesses, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of private companies too, non-listed companies um, that don't have the cash reserves to see this through are going to uh, maybe need to be sold very cheaply. And that's mm -hmm. going to happen to and, and the businesses that are there to scoop, scoop up those mid-sized businesses are things like Berkshire Hathaway, which has like 800 billion in cash. Right. had said, uh, you know, probably six months ago, he said, I just think everything's overvalued. And he was just waiting, just waiting right. for something like this to happen. Um, we're going to see probably increased uh, consolidation of a lot of industries. And there is a that's kind of a double edged sword, because mm. let's say we start seeing Amazon be even more. Um, just constant in our daily lives. I mean, it already is for some people, mm -hmm. but imagine that you as an American cannot escape getting something from Amazon. That's going right. to put enormous pressure on the government and society as a whole to say, hold on, why are we at the whims of a, 
private company like this that is so that intrudes in almost every aspect of our lives, almost everyone's life. Uh, why is that private? You know, mm-hmm. uh, so that's kind of a fine line that those companies are going to have to walk is right. how how much market share do they get before it's really bad? Uh, and and something that's illustrative of this is that that Amazon or distributing companies might look toward is um, the battle that tech and telecom companies have had with providing Internet. There's hmm. the battle of, of net neutrality, whether Internet is a utility and should be regarded by the government as such or whether it is uh, a service that a private company can provide and potentially gouge you, mm-hmm. the consumer, on. I think we're going to start seeing a lot of other companies face that dilemma where they, you know, they they want obviously to make as much money as possible, but at the same time, if they penetrate the market too much, then people go, "Wait a second, why are you pub? Or why are you private?" Why right. You, you know, plus, you providing- plus, yeah. right now it's like you know, states and cities want Amazon to come there because they do provide a lot of jobs right now. They're one of the few companies that's actually providing more and more jobs every year. But mm-hmm. at some point, that's going to reverse. You know, Amazon has a stated goal that by 2030, they want to have fully automated warehouses. So not a yeah. single human being would be needed there. They're also moving towards fully automated delivery of your goods. And they've been working really hard on this. So at a certain point, it's not going to be Amazon as the provider of jobs. It'll be Amazon as the provider of services where there will be very few need for human jobs and in the meantime they're also working on amazon cares which is their own sort of health mm. play into like the, yep. you know providing health care and so it's it's interesting to think of like a future where amazon basically like provides like all of our goods and services and our health care like they're providing a lot of the roles that a government historically has has provided so it's it i see your point that it's like how how big can a private company get? And also, are there risks of if all of our data is with one company, what happens if that company gets a major hack or if there's some corruption and we don't have other companies to sort of pick up the slack with typical American dynamism? Or, or if the company, because it's it's the company is not beholden. I mean, the government is limited. The federal government's limited by a constitution and laws and all that. A company is... Yes, it is. It's limited by the context, the legal, you know, context of the jurisdiction it's in. But it can still do things that we as consumers, I mean, we don't have the same rights as citizens. You know, as if our relation with Amazon is far weighted in Amazon's favor than it is, than our relationship with the federal government is. We have a say no matter what in what the government does with Amazon. We don't. And so that's something to worry about. But another trend I wanted to explore is that we in increasing isolation, right? The idea of like neoliberalism that you can reduce each person to an individual who's engaging in sort of um, commercial and rational transactions and that that is what drives people. Uh, and that's what kind of motivates them. There's an interesting contrast here, and I don't know what to make of it. We, in our isolation, are increasingly connected to other people. Mm, and yeah. I don't, in a facile way, like, oh, we're Skyping right now or whatever. I mean that in saying 
I have not seen, I can count on one hand the number of people I've seen who aren't in my immediate household right now um, mm-hmm. outside in the past week or a few days. Um, but at the same time, I feel an incredible, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do too, an incredible sense of community and yeah. duty to other people. Uh, well, there's that hashtag, alone together, that yeah. really emblemizes that sentiment. Of course, there is a beautiful irony in the fact that we, a lot of people, there's social solidarity in not seeing and interacting with other people. It's perfect for introverts, you know, yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. we get to say, yeah, fuck off. I, you know, I, I like you, but I don't want to have to talk to you. Um, right. you know, it's like, wow, uh, those meetings really could all have been emails. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that there's an interesting contrast and irony there and i don't fully know what to make of it because we're not really deep into this yet but i really want people to start thinking about that and appreciating that contrast and kind of exploring it yeah you know it almost reminds you of like the early internet like what people hoped the internet would be before it just turned into a cesspool of trolls and disinformation (laughs) oh man but i love it anyways let's talk about the industries that are seriously going to struggle under this and you know then after that we can talk about the stimulus package that's being proposed so you know certain businesses just at a high level you know we already talked about the bigger ones that aren't able to variableize their costs so for instance you know uber can if uber doesn't get a lot of rides which they're not getting a lot of rides right now they also don't have to pay their drivers they're pretty much most of their costs are variable. But if you contrast that to an airline, you know, airline can save some money because maybe they're using less fuel, but they still have enormous overhead costs that aren't going to change. They have to fly a certain amount of of their routes or else they lose the route. They have to pay for their planes, their staff, maintenance. None of that goes away just because there's less demand. So airlines is one obvious uh, you know, face-to-face businesses we talked about, bartenders, hairstylists, even yogis. I did a remote yoga class on Instagram Live yesterday, and they accept Venmo donations. So some yogis are figuring it out, but a lot aren't. Uh, travel businesses, obviously, transportation, air, uh, movie theaters, shipping. There's less demand for automakers, uh, yep. sports, and you know, March Madness was canceled. I don't know. Are there any others I'm missing? There's there's so much like film production, retail businesses, restaurants, casinos, hotels, cruises. So there's a lot of industries that are going to seriously be hit. So one question I have for you is how much of this is permanent? Meaning, is there going to be a sort of new normal where people are just going to travel less? Like they're not going to risk you know flying to another side of the country to you know have lunch and shake hands with some other business development person Uh, or how much of this is going to return to normal and you know we will see a great rebounding in restaurants and concerts and that kind of thing i'm curious your perspective i think it's too early to say but i think it's going to expose for a lot of businesses the the it's going to become necessary for a lot of businesses to revisit things which for decades have not been questioned. I travel quite a bit for my work and a lot of it could just be done by video conferencing or by phone calls. And I've largely shifted to that. Uh, 
but you know, large institutions and businesses that have beefed up travel budgets for salesmen to go make that in-person handshake, Mm -hmm. they might realize that that's not so necessary depending on how they make their sales. I'm guaranteed that there will be a lot of businesses that learn nothing from this. And Mm -hmm. I hope that fail. I mean, (laughs) if they're inefficient, they shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't, uh, they should be outcompeted. Um, but I think it's almost too early to say, I would hope that in the future, people are taking fewer flights. I, you know, I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, oftentimes you can measure when you look at a metro area, you can, uh, the pattern of commuters going into the metro area and coming out is very similar to a heartbeat, right? Mm. Think about car and commuter as being like a platelet or something or a red right. blood cell. And it goes into the heart and gets pumped out every day. There's 365 beats a year. Um, and, you know, the more heartbeats that there are, the more, uh, you know, the more that you have, a, the higher resting heart rate that you have, the likelier you, you are to die earlier. That's just mm. kind of, that's that's a, that's a scientific truism. Right. I'm sure you have biologists listening who are going to call me on my kids, <laughs> but whatever. Um but that's true. I mean, if you have a lower resting heart rate, generally, that's a good indicator of health and fitness. Uh, I hope that that metaphor carries to our economy where we realize that we don't need to be expending so much energy, so much gas uh, and fuel to get people to a physical location and back that we can be adaptable creatures that can, you know, maybe uh, in building future houses, it will be par for the course to just have an office. I mean, usually it is depending on Mm -hmm. how big your house is, but my hope is that that would just become as necessary as having a master bedroom. Yeah. Um, I love that perspective of thinking of ourselves as part of this macro organism that is basically like pumping blood in and out each day. And it's interesting when you think about how that feeds into the environmental aspect as well where we've seen some pretty incredible changes where the Venice canals are running clear, where there's fish and there's geese and the level of emissions around the globe and China, they had a record number of blue sky days. Yeah. So it's, it's hard. It's a, uh, you know, on the one hand, you don't want to overstate it. And some people have gone as far as to say like, this is nature's way of clawing back the real virus, which is humanity. But if you do think about it in a macro way, you can imagine a world, the world being a lot healthier as a whole, you know, including the environmental and the human aspect of it, where we don't need to be like shifting around in a, you know, in a hectic manner every single day as we have been pumping out all of this air so we can move around. Instead, we can have this intelligent network where we talk to each other remotely and, you know, we, we each do what we what we can best do to provide without creating undue stress on the environment. Yeah. And I think that, I think that it's, I don't know how much energy it requires for us to communicate, you know, using video conferencing or, or on the phone or whatever, I guarantee it's cleaner and that Mm -hmm. there's less energy expenditure than my driving, even the, the best hybrid car to and from a location Right. I think just gonna under, I think we're going to truly this is the fruition of our understanding and appreciating the commercial as well as personal value of 
uh, technology that really got its boom, you know, in the, the late 90s, you know, the Internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, you know, it started off, like you said, as being people being idealistic about, uh, you know, what they could do. And, you know, people on IRC channels, um, you know, hacker hacker groups or whatever slowly devolving into its middle age or its adolescence of people sending shit memes and whatever. (laughs) And and then ultimately electing a president in 2016. Uh, (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, it almost feels like we, we were in this era of like, Oh, screw it. Nothing matters. Like almost this just sort of anarchistic nihilistic, just like, Oh, nothing matters. Everything's corrupt. Nothing works well. But then the coronavirus hit and people are like, oh, actually, some shit does matter. Like, it actually matters what the government response is and what people themselves do. So I hope that we've gotten beyond that sort of nihilistic attitude of just like let everything burn. And we've moved more to, okay, let's actually do what we can do to create a better world for all of us. Yeah, I mean, there's it's a it's a shock to the system. It's a material shock to the system. This isn't a cultural issue in the sense of like, you know, this isn't uh, this isn't something that people fight over because they view it as a, you know, a symbolic issue. So, for example, and, and I, I don't mean to um, to, you know, lower the value of symbolic issues. They have a great deal of impact on people's life. But, you know, whether you can go into uh, you know, whether like a business is making a cake for a gay couple. I mean, right. don't get me wrong. That symbol is incredibly important. And I don't want anyone to misinterpret what I'm saying here. It's incredibly important and people shouldn't be denied that right to, mm-hmm. you know, have to, uh, to not be discriminated against in a business of public accommodation. Um, but it's different said, than not being able to feed your kids. <laughs> it, it, it is. It, there is a material difference between that and yeah, and being able to feed your kids or right. Well, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like the bottom ones are the most important, and that's not to take away from the higher needs. Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a pretty great framework to look at it from. Um, and and the reason why this is so potent is because there are people who can ignore those symbolic issues because they just decide that it's not relevant to them or whatever. Uh, but food's relevant to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you, you can't ignore that. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue because Andrew Yang has obviously risen even to greater prominence recently in re- relating to UBI because the GOP in their proposed stimulus bill have the direct payments to individual Americans as part of their proposal. Now, it hasn't been passed yet. They're still working it out in Congress. But I think maybe I can just sort of lay out what the plan is, at least what we know of it right now. And then I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how you think it's going to evolve and whether you think it's really the right solution or if there's any ways we could improve it. So just for a bit of background, it's clear that the economy is on fire to some extent. We could hit a recession, maybe even a depression, if we don't do something big. And Andrew Yang had this great analogy where he said that when your house is on fire, you don't really care how much water you use to put it out. Well, the important thing is that you you put that you you know you uh, put out the fire on your home. It's a similar thing with using cash to put out the economic fire that's happening right now. 
So here's what was proposed in the GOP stimulus package. Direct payments for of about $1,200 to individuals who make less than 75K. It's different for couples. Airline relief of up to $50 billion in loans that the airline would have to pay back. Uh, and there are some limitations on executive compensation for two years. There's also distressed industry relief of up to $150 billion for business sectors affected by COVID-19. So we, we listed some of those business sectors that are distressed earlier. Tax day was moved from April 15th to July 15th. That's not part of the bill, but that is a relevant change that is being made. Although it's worth noting that you still need to save for your taxes. So even if you have to pay your taxes later, it's not like you don't have to pay them. So it's unclear how much that really helps people. And then free COVID-19 testing for people who have insurance. And this all amounts to a total stimulus package of around $1 trillion. Uh, Ray Dalio has said that he thinks it needs to be about double that for us to really make a dent in the situation. So I'm curious from your perspective, first of all, what are your thoughts on this whole big shift that the GOP has had? I mean, a lot of these policies are something that would be hard to imagine the GOP supporting prior to this crisis. And also, look, like, do you think this is effective? Do you think it's likely to get passed? I've heard that a lot of it's being held up right now in Congress. So it used to be moving at a warp speed and now it's turned into a legislative slog. So I'd love to just get your, your thoughts on the package and also how it relates to 2008 potentially. Yeah, I mean, as we speak, it's being hammered out. Uh, you know, I know that personally, um, I, I know that it's things are constantly in flux. So everything that you just said, a lot of those will probably stay in. Who knows? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. literally, who knows? This is where it becomes important to be a high level staffer or an actual elected official as you get in moments like these where there isn't really enough time for people to lobby, uh, you kind of get to set the, you know, you, you get to set the agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything that you said there is correct, though. I, I want to make a quick, uh, you know, um, correction is that the $1,200 payment is a one-time payment. It's not recurring. Right. Um, you know, there are other plans, like I, I think Bernie Sanders is calling for 2 k per person per month. Maxine Waters, the uh, chairwoman of the House Financial Services Committee, I think was proposing something similar. Um, Joe Kennedy, who's a Senate candidate in Massachusetts, who's a current rep, is like trying to run to the left of his more left current senator, Ed Markey, um, Hmm. by proposing like $4,000 per person or something, which is I was just completely blown away by. I was not expecting that. Um, but you know, you're right. It's not normal for the Republican party to suggest something like this, but that's because the Republican party, and I say this, (laughs) I might be burning bridges with the democratic party, my own party, but the Republican party has better political instincts and realizes that a party only exists if people vote for it and support it. Um, it's not necessarily the ideas that, the party champions, you can't make a shift too quickly and it Mm -hmm. can't be unprompted, you know, but you, the point of a political party is to win. Right. Right. Don't get too attached to labels. Yeah. And, and, uh, and the democratic party I think is getting out maneuvered. 
in it's, many instances. It's amazing. Yeah. You've hardly even heard anything from the Democratic side. I mean, you know, Joe Biden's our presumed nominee, and it's unclear where he even stands on this issue. And maybe I just haven't looked into it enough of what Bernie said, but I haven't seen much of, of his position in the news. Yeah, I mean, the news isn't really, because he's not the presumptive nominee, he's not getting too much coverage, though he mm. is trying to get a lot of traction with, he's been calling for donations to his campaign that are then split between five charities. So he's raised like $2 oh, million already for Meals on Wheels or something like that. What is shocking to me in a political strategy, from a political strategy viewpoint, is why is Joe Biden, why hasn't he been seen since Tuesday? Right. Um, is that, I, don't wanna, I mean, yeah. you know, one one obvious possibility is he's actually sick or unwell. Hope that's not the case. Another is he can't figure out how to make the dang video call work. <laughs> you know, like it's not like he's he's an Elizabeth Warren character who does live streams and that's never been his role. So maybe it's just the fact that he's holed up in wherever he is, he's not so, able to get it out there. But yeah, you'd think his staff would help him and figure out some sort of strategy it does seem quite odd that he's been absent the explanation that he is that he somehow can't figure out the video is i mean i get that's a valid thing but i that's ridiculous campaigns have <laughs> campaigns have hundreds of staff and are and have tens of millions of dollars or millions of dollars at their disposal they can literally hire someone to wear personal protective equipment and hold a, a live streaming phone at his face and right. just sit and have that person just get fed by like blue apron or whatever. Just have, have right, a delivery right. service that keeps that person alive. Like they have the resources to do that. And for a political campaign, a presidential campaign that is so focused on one person, it yeah. is shocking. So what do you think the real reason is? And he's probably sick. Hmm. Um, and they don't want to... Be- because maybe it's not COVID-19, it's something else, but they just would rather not play to it yeah. in the media. It shows weakness if he's sick. However, it also shows weakness if he isn't around. Um, mm. Though it's also possible, and I've been mulling this over, I've been chewing on it, uh, they could be trying to rehash Secretary Clinton's strategy in 2016, which is, I'm going to sit in the back and let Trump continue to say stupid shit and fuck up. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, t- have him take the limelight and really screw up. Right. Um, and I'm not going to worry about saying something else. I think that's a horrible mistake to make because then there's only one voice that's dictating what should be the normal. Right. right? right. You need to have kind of like in a parliamentary system, you have the prime minister and their government, and then you have a shadow government. And the shadow government needs to be proposing policies that the rest of the country, whoever supports them, want in place. Um, that's the way that you show leadership. I'm Right. Plus, I'm, it hasn't been working because Trump's approval rating has gone up by 10% in the last week or so since he actually started taking the coronavirus seriously. So it does feel like he's Joe Biden has missed out on an opportunity to respond as if he is president, which I think would have probably been the strongest strategy like pretend like he's already Obama and just do, yeah. you know, say the thing that people want someone to say and you know, he's a reassuring leader. He's probably sick. Yeah. Is my guess. And it doesn't necessarily need to be coronavirus. I mean, he could just be stressed. 
campaigns are hard. I'm in my peak fitness and I probably would be exhausted by a campaign, you know, 16 hour days, talking to people, shaking hands, making speeches. Yeah, it is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to dig into one aspect of the GOP stimulus, which is the direct payment and how that differs from Andrew Yang's proposal. So Andrew Yang proposed $1,000 a month to every American, regardless of income or dependence or any other status. And the whole idea of that is that it's capitalism. We're just raising the floor from $0 of income to $1,000 of income a month. So you're not losing out on any of the dynamism that comes with the capitalist system. You're just raising the bar so that you don't have to worry about people starving or people losing their... I mean, they still might have those things, but it's it becomes far less of an issue than it would if people just have no income they can count on, especially if they lose their job in some sort of crisis like this. So what they're proposing, like you said, is a one-time payment, or perhaps it's for you know a few months in a row as the crisis goes on, but no further. And it's not to every American, it's just to Americans that make less than 75K, or I think it was less than like 150K for couples. Yeah, so just to, yeah, just yeah. to clear it up, it's, it is, um, if your income exceeds, if your adjusted gross income exceeds 75,000, if it's below $75,000, and mm-hmm. your adjusted gross income... For 2018, any, right? Right, for your 2018 tax filing. Mm-hmm. Um, if there are any accountants listening or whatever, I'm sure they'll skewer me for butchering this again. Accountants <laughs> and biologists really are going to get me. Um, but uh, adjusted gross income takes into account like the um, your contributions to retirement accounts. So like those aren't counted in there. It, it's it's oh, a I didn't mod- realize that. Yeah. So um, so for many people, they might be eligible even if they don't think they are, hmm. and it phases out. I think it's. Um, I think it's five dollars. You receive fewer than you receive five dollars less for every hundred dollars that your AGI exceeds seventy-five thousand. So anyone with an AGI of ninety-nine thousand or above receives nothing. Right. Um, but if you let's say made you know you have an AGI of eighty thousand, that's uh, two hundred fifty dollars that you get fewer. Yeah. So just in, in hearing you explain the details, one, uh, one problem is obvious, which is the people who really need this yeah. aren't going to be able to figure out the right way to qualify. There's too much bureaucratic red tape, too many qualifiers, and it also slows down the speed at which you can deliver relief. It could be too little too late. And we saw that with the 2008 crisis where a lot of the relief came like months like after the crisis had already pretty much ended and one interesting thing about 2008 is that it was really a corporate relief fund more than an individual relief fund it was all about saving businesses from failing especially the big banks but also airlines other major businesses it wasn't really at all about individuals so one thing that's hopeful is that this package does go further to the individual side but part of my concern is, A, it doesn't go far enough, and, and uh, B, it may also seed a little bit of resentment 
for people who don't qualify and they may perceive the people who do qualify as being like, you know, leeches to the system. Whereas if everyone got it, you wouldn't have that sentiment. Well, this is this is the fundamental argument against means testing. So this is a means tested program. And I, I disagree with you. I think it's actually pretty easy to implement. The IRS has all of your tax filings on hand. They just so you don't it. have to submit anything. They would just send it no. to you. OK, they mail it to you based off of whether you if you didn't file your taxes in 2018, then you're shit out of luck. Yeah. <laughs> but better file your taxes. Yeah, uh, they can create a uh, they can literally take the data from your 1040 of what your AGI is, plug it into a, um, a formula. I'm shit at Excel and I can probably do this for, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and, uh, and so it's actually, I think it's relatively easy, but your the point you're touching on is, is completely valid, which is that it's, uh, and sound it's that means tested programs generate resentment. And ultimately that, that means that people who, our higher income earners are then less likely to want to take necessary steps to maintain. I think what's what the point of these payouts to people ultimately is to maintain what's called the velocity of money. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that you don't want there to be a credit freeze. You know, that was the issue in 2008 was that so many of these banks lost money off of crap uh, mortgage-backed securities that were rated incorrectly, that they lost a bunch of money, and then they weren't able or willing to lend out that money freely. So mm-hmm. that meant that small businesses that needed a credit facility couldn't get it, or that people that wanted a mortgage had to pay a much higher interest rate. The cost of money was more expensive. So the right. Fed had to give a huge, you know, they had to do TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, to just nix the MBS, the mortgage-backed securities. And then uh, and then, you know, from there, um, the Federal Reserve had to just throw in a bunch of money and, right. you know, you had to pass a stimulus package to increase the amount of money that was circulating through the system. Um, you know, yeah. so I think that's the goal right now is to give a lot of money to consumers that don't have that $400 of emergency savings in their savings account so that they can spend money so that businesses don't seize up and fail and we have a mass right. dot. Yeah, and it's it's worth noting that we've never tried a bottom-up approach like that, and it's almost sure to work better than the top-down approach. Because when you give money to people that literally can't afford $400 expense, they're gonna spend that money, whether they spend it on their rent or their healthcare or their, their kids' uh, school supplies or whatever it is, they're gonna spend that money. Whereas if you just give it to top corporations, they may do share buybacks, they may uh, issue dividends, they may increase compensation. Um, and, and your point about like the real objective is to stop the slowing of the speed of money. And you can think about this in like a microcosm of, you know, let's take a gym example, like you own a little workout gym and, you know, you have to close down because of coronavirus. So you're no longer making any revenue. So you can't, therefore, you can't pay the money uh, on the property. And then the, the, you know, then the bank basically has, they're not getting any money for, for that property. So then they have bad debt and it just trickles all the way up through the system where the whole system sort of seizes up. So the whole idea is that if you give money to people at the bottom, to everyone, then the money starts being spent more freely and you are able to avoid 
that worst case economic scenario. In general, it seems like there's excess value for uh, placed and stored in um, in in like securities or in instruments that yield people money off of just holding them. And what I mean mm -hmm. by that is is that people that are collecting rent, economic rent, whether that's traditional rent by holding a property and and having people pay in, uh, or whether you are a shareholder receiving a dividend just because you hold a security, um, it seems like there is too much capital on that and that there needs to be a shift if we want to maintain the velocity of money. And I think we did a great disservice to our economy when we passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017, in December of 2017, that allowed, it, it, it lowered the corporate tax rate, mm -hmm. uh, I think from 35% to like 21, um, and it allowed corporations to take all that excess money now and then do stock buybacks, elevate artificially their the value right. of their And then, you know, yeah, maybe the dividends that you pay are higher, um, but that's only going to a small number of people in society that are able to buy stocks and own stocks. Most people don't. Right. Yeah, I forget which candidate it was, but one of them recommended that they said we could pay for a lot of what we need to pay for, like universal health care, if we just made capital gains tax the same rate as income tax. It's like, why do you have to pay less on earnings just from owning stocks? rather than earnings from the job that you literally sweat your blood, sweat and tear every day. And more of that paycheck gets taken out than someone who just owns capital assets. Now, the, the argument for having lower capital gains is that you want to incentivize people who are willing to take risks with their money, that people are going to say, I have excess money and I'm willing now to risk some of it on businesses, that you wanna reward that risk taking. Well, right now is a time where we don't wanna reward risk taking in that sense. We wanna reward people maintaining the levels of consumption that maintain businesses that aren't really a risk. Opening a gym in an area that doesn't have a gym where there's demand for it is not really a risky proposition. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we wanna make sure that businesses that provide those services like restaurants or gyms or whatever can still survive. Um, and so, you know, to do that, we need to kind of shift value from different areas of the economy. Um, yeah. And I think kind of facing a, a great reckoning there. Yeah. That sounded kind of like Red Dragon. I don't know. Can't, <laughs> we're facing a great reckoning. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. yeah. All right. I have two like little rapid fire questions and then I think we should get into the future scenarios. So sure. the first rapid fire is, do you think the coronavirus outbreak makes it more or less likely that Donald Trump will be reelected? Uh, my gut instinct says less, but man, Joe Biden's fucking it up right now. <laughs> like, get out, be a leader, go show people something that's just blown my mind right now is that. And I say this as an unabashed Bernie Sanders supporter, you know, a lot of people, you know, people listening might know that or whatever, but, mm -hmm. but, uh, a lot of what he was proposing, people are now saying, yeah, maybe right, we right. should. Oh yeah. Uh, what Bernie said. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe we should have like health. Everyone should have health care. If it's going right. to affect everyone, then why aren't they all getting testing? Why are we leaving the production of ventilators up to, you know, a <laughs> private business when the government should be 
producing them to meet a social need. Um, so right. it's a little confusing why Joe Biden isn't capitalizing on that. That my gut says Donald Trump that this will, you know, all the standard predictors, if there's a recession, that's usually yeah. bad for the incumbent. If there's, you know, a huge bungling of the situation, which is what he's doing, uh, then, you know, it won't bode well for for Donald Trump. Then again, you know, if you miss the opportunity to show how bad the guy is doing, how do you expect to win if you let him set the agenda and the tone? Yeah. All right. Second rapid fire question. Uh, how many or at which month do you think we will start to return to some sort of normalcy? April, May, June, July, you know, next January. What, what do you think? There's there is a lot of different thinking on this. Some people think that, you know, coronaviruses are pretty similar to like rhinoviruses, like the cold, like the common cold, that mm-hmm. it's not it's it's virologically different than the flu, um, but that it could subside during warmer months. So I would hope maybe in July or August. That being said, um, this also is spread through tropical countries like southern China and Singapore. So I don't know whether that stands up. I think the Imperial College study that a lot of experts are citing now um, says that we would have to go on a in order to maintain appropriate healthcare capacity, we would uh, have to quarantine or, you know, do self-isolation or social distancing for two months and then have one month of people can kind of resume their activities. And then, you know, we got to curve it back because then, or curb it again, um, because then, you know, we'll reach capacity, uh, which makes me think, man, that month is going to be insane. People are going Summer parties. (laughs) Party every night, probably. Yeah. Um, All right. Final rapid fire question. How bad do you think the unemployment rate will get at its worst in the aftermath of this crisis? Mm, For context, um, it was between 20, I think it was between like 25 and 30% during the Great Depression. And that's about the worst we've had, you know, in the last hundred years. I think when we see this through, if everyone, if every business takes the steps that it needs to, to like shut down like the restaurant industry and, you know, service industries. And if there aren't enough businesses that can adapt to provide teleservices, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw 20 to 25%. And that's using, I think the U3 measure, there are different measures of unemployment. Mm -hmm. Like if you use the U6, which I guess is the most broad, I believe, um, our unemployment was not at 3.5%. Well, because it's only people who are actively searching for a job and, you know, who's going to actively like if you're a, you know, a a film production guy, who's going to actively search for a film production job right now? Like everything's shut down. Obviously, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, it's I think, you know, if you don't juke the stats, like if you're actually looking at a what is the realistic number of people who are working age that should be working or could mm-hmm. be working if everything were running great and swell, probably one out of three. Um, if we keep using like the U3 metric, um, the traditional metric, mm-hmm. then I would guess, I think the low estimates now from like, there was a Goldman Sachs presentation and I think secretary Mnuchin said uh, like 9%. And mm. 
I I think that's going to be higher. I mean, realistically, I think it's going to be like 20. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm just looking to this uh, this tweet from Austin Allred where he said, peak unemployment in the U.S. during the Great Depression was 24.9%. Unemployment right now is 3.5%. 9% of the labor force works in the restaurant industry. 10% works in hospitality and tourism. We may get within striking distance soon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's not even taking into account second or third order effects. We're in the honeymoon period of this right now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Businesses can still operate using if they have a rainy day fund, they can still make payroll using that. Um, there will be more closures to come. Right. It's we're just we're just getting into it. I think it's going to be, you know. So last, all right. So last rapid. Fire, I have another rapid fire question actually, and then we'll <laughs> get into the worst that? case scenario. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Last rapid fire question: Have we has the stock mar- market bottomed out yet? No. No. Yeah. No. Uh, I think because this is such a novel virus and because it's a novel situation, we I mean, when was the last time in our lifetimes or in anyone that I can imagine that, you know, that is coherent now? um, When was the last time that restaurants couldn't operate widespread? Like even during the worst recessions, there have been restaurants. (laughs) There have been. There have been bars. There have been all of these places that people can congregate and go. You've just wiped out because of the features of this illness, of this virus. You've just wiped out key sectors of not even just the economy, but human life. Like mm-hmm. we socialize frequently. We're social animals. We you know, exist with other people. Um, and the economy is an expression of that in, intrinsic trait. Um, right. so uh, it's, I mean, it's just, it's going to get a lot worse. <laughs> I just yeah, can't see. I think yeah. you're right. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break now and then let's get into the worst case scenario. Okay. So Brett, in your mind, what is the worst case scenario for the future of the U S economy? Worst case scenario. I think the worst case scenario is if we take a Herbert Hoover 1929 approach where we just let a bunch of businesses fail. We take like an ultra libertarian stance. And we say, if you didn't have a rainy day fund, you're fucked. And we let a bunch of businesses fail. And then we let the already too large megacorps like Walmart or Amazon or whatever, those that have huge amounts of reserve capital or, or Apple, what do they have? Like it's like, 300 billion or something just in cash. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the worst result is if we let all those small businesses fail and then we allow those large institutions to snap them up at a huge discount mm. and then we further increase the inequality divide between people that own shares in those companies and people who don't, people who you know either own their business at best or... Um, people who work for those small businesses are then just completely shit out of luck. I think that's the worst situation where we see increased inequality um, and, and a smaller economy at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's similar to mine as far as the economic implications. There's another aspect of this that is worrisome that I'd be interested to get your thoughts on, and that's the concern about authoritarianism. Because, you know, recently there have been some extra powers granted to the executive branch as a result of this. And I just saw from The Hill, they put out a story about how the Department of Justice has just quietly asked chief judges to detain people indefinitely without trial during emergencies. Yes. So I fear that we're heading towards, you know, we already had some concerns about the powers of the executive branch. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts of if you're concerned about where we're heading. I actually, that was one of the things I wanted to uh, share on this because I think it's important just in general for people to know, you know, especially people listening in, uh, this is horrifying and it should shock anyone who gives any sort of a shit about civil liberties and what it means to exist in a liberal society. Um, we have been in disasters before nine 11, uh, you know, and the global financial crisis being two most recent, but let's even go back, you know, the last time habeas corpus was suspended for a number of people, I believe was in, uh, whenever they did uh, the internment of Japanese civilians in this mm. country, not Japanese civilians, people who were Japanese or had Japanese, hey, of Japanese descent. American citizens right. who had their freedoms and civil liberties stripped from them based off of their ethnicity, a shameful, disgusting period in our history. Um, and the only time I can think before that again was during the civil war. They suspended president Lincoln suspended habeas corpus. Um, I read that article that that concerns me greatly that it's even being proposed. I don't mm-hmm. think it would make it through a democratic house. Mm-hmm. I think enough people I s- sincerely hope that enough people would look at that and go, "Holy shit, what are you trying to do?" Um, another thing that was proposed in there was the DOJ was trying to change the federal rules of criminal procedure so that people who are defendants um they, you know, as a defendant, you have the right to appear in court before a judge. That is one of our sacredly held rights is that if the government wants to, if the government believes that it needs to suspend your liberty because you broke a, a law, um, that you are able to face the government and petition, you know, against your, you know, against your imprisonment, against your being, mm-hmm. your, against your detention. They want to change the rules of criminal procedure so that they can allow they can uh have you virtually before the court so that they can have you not be there in person that they can Mm. have you teleconference in which i get it they want to they don't want people in the court to get coronavirus but i mean weren't we just talking about deep fakes like a few months ago (laughs) weren't we just talking about i mean are we not opening a can i mean are we not allowing quite easily for the government to before for bad actors to potentially detain people create right. a deep fake of saying like yeah I, I plead guilty and then just throwing them in prison i mean mm-hmm. that's terrifying they're trying to get rid of in the rules of uh, criminal procedure they are literally doing strike lines uh to the words unless the uh, uh unless the defendant does not consent Hmm. to 
you know, teleconferencing in. I am, this is something I've been sharing with all my friends on the Hill and with, you know, all my other friends who do similar work to me. Um, it's terrifying. And I think yeah. we should be very alert to taking extraordinary measures to save society and the economy, but we shouldn't, we should need to be extremely careful, uh, careful about, um, sacrificing things that make our society so great. Um, another thing, and I, you know, I don't want to take up too much of this, but, but another thing that I see as increasingly disturbing, um, is biosurveillance. So there's yeah. the health, there's HARPA, the health agency or health something research projects agency. Um, and this was something I was looking at for work because the government is increasingly looking at tracking, uh, fitness for soldiers by using sweat biosensors that they just put on your arm and mm. that can that can look at and analyze metabolites from your sweat so it can see for example that oh uh, at 4 a.m. you had a cortisol spike meaning that you likely woke up at that time or maybe you had a nightmare mm-hmm. or maybe you drank coffee um, or hey we can see that you are eating too much sugar and that you're being prone right. to die there's there's intrusive surveillance that um, you know, is being tested on the military and that could easily find its way into daily life with a disturbing marriage between, uh, a hierarchy, a hierarchical large corporation that wants to get involved in the healthcare space, like all of them, like Apple and Amazon Mm -hmm. and Google, which just bought Fitbit, where they will then make an alliance with the government that says, yeah, we're going to collect all this data. You just need to pass a law that says that you can access it and that everyone needs to make it public to us and then by proxy to you. And then we can track to see whether people are indeed social distancing and we can make it a misdemeanor for you to not do so. That to me is terrifying because once you grant the government that power, it's not going to go away. Yeah. You know, both of those points you raised are really the same points that were raised by Yuval Noah Harari and he always thinks super high level macro trends, where is the world heading? And the quote from him is, in this time of crisis, we face two particularly important choices. The first is between totalitarian surveillance and citizen empowerment. The second is between national isolation and global solidarity. Was this in a Financial Times article? It probably was. Actually, Jack, the the founder of Twitter, tweeted out that tweet from Yuval, but I believe Yuval's original quote was in a Financial Times article. My my old boss shared his article that he wrote on this with a guy who knows uh, Harari. Oh, cool. I think there's a connection of thoughts here. My my boss, this is a project I've kind of opened the lid on now. Now everyone knows about it, but, um, but... yeah, this is something we've been looking into yeah. for a while. But yeah, I mean, when we think about the worst case, it's like, okay, so the choice between totalitarian surveillance and citizen empowerment, obviously the worst case is totalitarian sur- surveillance, uh, especially if the government that has the power doesn't necessarily have you, the individual's best interests at heart. And then the second choice between national isolation and global solidarity, my concern is that if America goes the path of national isolation and if China continues to go the path of more global solidarity, then it may lead to a situation where whatever's happening in the U.S., the world is shifting more towards totalitarian surveillance 
and global solidarity in the way that China sort of imagines that, and we sort of cede uh, power, which you know leads to another question, which is the the great decoupling. Do you think that with everything going on in, in with the coronavirus, that it's pretty much inevitable that there will be a decoupling between the American economy and the Chinese economy? Well, I, I could see that being both a positive and a negative, and I do see it happening. Um, mm-hmm. The trade war was just the beginning. There, you know, there is going to be a decoupling, and it was already kind of in place. We were already companies were already shifting supply lines right. um, from China because China is now not the cheapest source of labor. I mean, they're mm-hmm. you know, things have already switched over to you know, production's already switched over to Indonesia and Vietnam. They don't have the populations to handle mm-hmm. the. the industrial capacity that we need to feed our consumer economy and to create all those goods. Um, I think the decoupling will eventually happen, you know, within this decade. Um, Mm. The the question for me is what is the U S going to do about it? And I don't want, I'm going to say this now, hopefully China doesn't take the stage as a superpower and blacklist me in 20 years. (laughs) But, um, I would prefer a country like the U.S., which at least pays lip service to the ideals of individual liberty and the value of a human life and mm-hmm. and individuals' rights in society, um, rather than a country that is imprisoning a million uh, Uyghurs in concentration camps. Right. I say this while I'm smiling, but that's because that's the only the only reaction that you can have to something so fucking horrible is yeah. uh, what. I mean, how do you, um, so you know, my hope is that, you know, the, the positive here is that, uh, is that maybe the U S can use this time to reassert itself and help the rest of the world. I mean, why need to, what if we made, you know, what if we turned all of our factories, all these shut down auto factories toward producing ventilators for the next month Mm -hmm. at 24 hours, seven days a week production and we create enough for the u.s and then we just start giving it away to countries right that's how you show that you're a true global power that's you know willing to help people out and sort of lead the charge uh whereas we've sort of ceded that role and i mean trump just reached out to kim jong-un that he's willing to help out north korea so at least we're taking care of the the most important allies (laughs) yeah i mean i i think the gesture, you know, you can even think of it back all the way to like ancient societies where, you know, the strong man of the village, the guy who has the biggest house and the hottest wife and, and, mm-hmm. and the choice meats from the cow or whatever, gives away trinkets and gifts um, to the people that support him. Yeah. I mean, it's the same fundamental dynamic right. and transaction just on a national global scale. You aren't some Nordic chieftain handing off a golden trinket to, you know, Beowulf or whatever. You're you're the global hegemon maintaining yeah. order and power under your hegemony uh, hegemony um, by also showing largesse in times of need. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, let's flip it around to the best case scenario. Best case scenario. My best case scenario, unfortunately, is not that great and As the weeks have gone on with Hence the Future, the best case seems to keep getting worse (laughs) as we get more data. But the best case is that uh, 
tens of thousands of people will die. There will be double digit unemployment for some number of months. There will be a lot of businesses that will fail. But one silver lining on the health side of things is that this is the first time in history that the entire globe has focused on a single problem. I, I can't think of another time that that has happened. You know, climate change could have been that with the Paris Climate Accord and whatever, but it didn't end up, we, there wasn't really follow through, so it ended up not being an, an instance of global collaboration. But when you think about just the power of all human minds working on a single issue, I actually feel fairly optimistic that we will figure out the health side of this. It's just a matter of, will we figure it out quickly enough and will the economic impact be so great that it'll be hard to recover? So my best case scenario is that, yeah, we do experience a lot of difficulty for businesses and for people who get sick. But if we take the right steps, especially by focusing on helping out individuals, so individuals can make rent and not go into bankruptcy and not have to pay $35,000 for COVID-19 healthcare treatment, yeah. then we could emerge six to nine months from now actually stronger and more dynamic, more nimble, uh, you know, less burdened because a lot of the maybe, you know, s slower businesses, that weaker businesses did get cleaned out and the businesses that are around are stronger and more resilient. And, you know, I, th I think that a lot of this comes down to the notion of are people on the side of progress and innovation or do people see progress and innovation as a threat to them and their own job? If you see progress and innovation as a threat to you, then you want to follow a slogan like make America great again. Oh, it's the immigrants that are that are taking away the jobs Like you want to go back to the 1950s. But if you view things in the way that Andrew Yang has framed them, where it's more about, look, we are a shareholder in the U.S. economy. We should want to do what's best for the U.S. economy. And if the U.S. economy does great, we should get dividends in the form of some sort of universal basic income. If everyone can flip to that sort of mindset, then I think, you know, if the power of, of American ingenuity, you never want to bet against the U.S. economy and, and U.S. ingenuity in the long run. You know, just ask Warren Buffett. So... I feel fairly hopeful that we can get through this and even be stronger on the other side, but it seems almost impossible that we won't undergo some seriously trying times, at least for the next three to six months and, and pro possibly a lot longer. I think it's likely to happen probably over two to three years, really. Mm -hmm. um, but hopefully, you know, there will be, I don't mean to minimize the deaths that are going to happen, the severe illnesses. I don't want to minimize them as birthing pains, but in a positive, with a positive outcome, I hope that they will be seen as birthing pains for society. Um, my hope is that we realize that government should exist to address situations like these. It needs to step in in times of emergency where commerce is interrupted and that we can't just rely on the market for a solution or whatever, that there exists a backstop, a social backstop to make sure that society keeps running. So I want there to be hopefully renewed faith in social institutions or at least people 
start demanding accountability and then the government can earn back trust um, and institutions can earn back trust. But I think that starts with empowering the individual and recognizing that we all make up society. You need to make sure that people aren't going hungry during this, that people mm-hmm. can have health care, that there does need to be a floor of basic services that everyone should have. Doesn't matter whether you're a citizen, doesn't matter whether you're undocumented, doesn't matter whether you're a criminal, it doesn't matter, sorry, not a criminal, it doesn't matter whether you have committed a crime and you're in prison, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whether you, it doesn't matter who you are, it's that you exist in a physical space, in a jurisdiction, and that we just guarantee certain things because that's what we want as animals, is to not have... Yeah, plus the whole, you know, keeping open essential services has made all of us really see the value in a lot of these jobs that people used to scoff at in the past you know truck drivers delivery people grocery checkout workers like the the people people who make day-to-day running yeah exactly yeah no and so i hope that there is a um a social shift towards understanding that everyone is a part of it we're all in it together i mean Mm -hmm. there's no you know People in New Rochelle in the suburbs of the wealthy suburbs of New York are getting sick just as equally as yeah. people are in in, you know, uh, poorer areas. Right. Um, we're all in it together. There's a common enemy. It's not even human, arguably not even alive, depending on your definition of life, viruses or whatever. Um, my hope is that there's a renewed there's an opportunity for government and institutions to regain people's trust again, mm-hmm. because people the reason why Donald Trump got elected was because people said, fuck this, this isn't working for me. Yeah. I want to a rapist game show host because this <laughs> is a reality TV show and he's really good at being on those. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what I would want... your ideal stimulus package look like? So people are able to regain that trust in the government, direct payments to people so that they can continue going about their lives and choosing which industries they want to keep around. Mm -hmm. Um, but then also, you know, I'm not entirely opposed to the idea of keeping some industries that we view as essential alive. Mm -hmm. That being said, if you want to socialize the, if you want a social safety net for businesses, then, uh, we better as taxpayers be getting a taste. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm opposed to, you know, what happened with TARP and what happened, this what's probably going to happen this time is that we give out low interest loans that get paid back. Mm-hmm. I want equity. I want equity in those businesses that then if those corporations then want to buy out the government's stake, then that's fine. They can do that later. But I want the government to own some shares in that right. so that so that dividends accrue as business gets better. That would be good. Um, but, you know, I think the overall positive here is if there is renewed trust in social institutions, I want us to get back into um, you know, we call it wartime production or whatever. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. melodramatic, but I want people to have the same feeling of social obligation and civic duty that you felt when people were rationing. Right. Like, no, we'll look out for each other, produce what's important. Half of the shit that's on the shelves we don't need. We need ventilators. We don't need an extra cush ball from made in <laughs> Indonesia or whatever. We need ventilators. We need medical supplies. We need masks. We need food. We need all of these things that keep the day-to-day humming. Uh, and then hopefully with that, with that renewed social optimism 
and faith in institutions and production of what actually matters, we can get our value systems in order, protect what needs to be protected, discard what can be discarded, and then reassert ourselves on the global stage as being, frankly, the hegemon. But more importantly, a hegemon that that respects, uh, you know, individual life. Mm-hmm. Um, and further on that, I hope that this is a kind of test run, a global test run for large global institutions like the World Health Organization, or if there's a similar institution to deal with climate, to come together and say, okay, so uh, we handled that. We handled the pandemic. Um, let's figure out this global warming thing. We right. saw that, you know, the environment is affected by our economic <laughs> output inversely. Yeah, it's, it's so hilarious that the same people who deny climate change are using the emission levels in China to measure how the economy is. Like It's like yeah, literally no, the same scientists that... <laughs> show the data for climate change or showing the data for how the COVID-19 is affecting the economy. And yet, I mean, hopefully this will result in more people coming around to the notion that climate change is a real threat. And it's also something we can mitigate, as was proven when the economy ground to a halt during the COVID-19 outbreak. Yes. And that not all of that, there is value in society to maintain those people who are going to have to switch jobs. So like mm-hmm. if you have to switch jobs because of COVID-19, if that if you if you can't be in the service industry, maybe you have to be in another industry or you receive payment from the government so that you don't die. I mean, that that seems obvious um, that we can do that for climate change. That's going right. to have to happen. There are enough coal miners in West Virginia. There are enough people doing fracking in Pennsylvania and across the Midwest who are going to be out of a job. What are we going to do with them that they Mostly, you know, that's a lot of the political opposition to changing our energy source is that so many jobs rely on it. Well, fine. We give payments to people so that they aren't dying, so that they can mm-hmm. feed themselves and live life. Um, and we view that as the cost that we need to incur to switch to cleaner energy. Um, you know, I see that as the positive, is that we can actually use this as a test run to make those changes later because they're going to happen and as a test run for if there's a greater pandemic in the future that has a higher death rate you know obviously it's good to be prepared for that situation yeah all right well let's bring it home now with the most likely scenario most likely scenario So, Brett, what is the most likely scenario for the future of the U.S. economy? Uh, I know, you know, what you were saying about how things are always trending worse and worse. Um, (laughs) I think what's likely to happen is we're going to have a mixed approach to um, how to resolve the economy in the state of this crisis. So we are already kind of you know, the likely relief package that's going to go through is going to be a one-time payment to consumers. I think we need to have recurring payments in order to keep the velocity of money, Mm -hmm. um, you know, high so that businesses aren't shuttered. I think what's most likely to happen is that there's going to be some of that. There might be some recurring payments, but they are going to exist at the same time as, uh, as huge, what do you, I mean, if you want to call them bailouts, sure. 
but mm-hmm. bailouts for uh, large industries that are ossified and shouldn't be that they need to adapt. And I mm-hmm. think what's going to happen is that we just are going to say, no, nah, here you go. Here's a bunch of money. You don't have to adapt. I think at the same time, a lot of in poor, you know, or just everyday people are just going to uh, be affected and are going to struggle even more. And there's going to be consolidation of businesses by large entities that have a lot of reserve capital. And I think we're probably going to come out of this with more people entering the gig economy and unstable work than fewer. On a maybe positive note, that might mean that more people say, I want a public option or Medicare for all mm-hmm. so that, you know, if there's a greater proportion of people that aren't getting their health insurance traditionally through work, um, you know, maybe I think that there will be renewed interest in uh, social democratic programs like universal health care um, than before. Yeah. Uh, there's probably going to be greater interest in UBI, but I think that you're going to have an uphill battle where you're going to have people probably on the right wing who represent, you know, moneyed interests saying we shouldn't just be handing out money to people for doing nothing. Um, but I think that is what you need to do to keep economies, mm-hmm. the economy alive. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even if you think about this from the perspective of an individual person, if you know you're going to get a $1,200 check from the government once, how much is that really going to affect your willingness to spend money and invest in a new business or whatever else? Whereas if you know you're going to get $1,000 every month moving forward, it would completely free you up to pursue whatever your passion is or to invest or to help out your elderly mother or to whatever it is. There are so many social goods that aren't being paid for right now. I, I don't want to sound like a Jezebel article, but like there, you know, women do shoulder a lot of the work that is unpaid, mm-hmm. um, you know, caring for relatives who are elderly or, you know, doing caretaker work or doing yeah. a lot more domestic centered work. Um, and that is largely uncompensated. I think that if you do have a UBI or something similar, um, you know, these recurring cash payments, then mm-hmm. yeah, that, that will be compensated then. And at the same time, you want to provide a basic level of stability so that social networks don't break down. Um, mm-hmm. because that's what gov- the government's there to make sure that we don't, you know, <laughs> we don't have ultimate splintering of society. Um, uh, but also we have so much time now. I mean, people are still working, but if you have so much time now in isolation that, Hopefully, if people aren't worried about, like, how am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to uh, buy food? They can kind of mull over new life. I mean, this is new mm-hmm. life. Yeah, new yeah. Life homes. Maybe there are services that can be provided. There are new businesses that can be started to serve people in their homes. We're, we're entering a new social rearrangement. There's yeah. going to be different economic solutions for different problems that come from that arrangement right yeah it's the world before corona and the world after it really is like a bifurcation in the simulation yeah (laughs) but yeah i think as far as my most likely i think it is going to be really challenging for like you said it's not just going to be a few months i think most likely it is going to be 
at least a year of, of struggles and market volatility. And I think the main positives that come out of this are the attitudes that people have, especially towards UBI, universal healthcare, even environmentalism. Mm -hmm. And I think especially just thinking from the individual perspective, each month that goes by during this crisis where you have to pay rent, I think there's going to be a mounting, mounting feeling, almost like, you know, the Occupy Wall Street kind of movement where people are going to demand certain action. And one of the, you know, there is so much that I despise about the way that Trump has run things. But one thing that he is able to do, like, like you said, the GOP has good political instincts and they'll do what they need to do in order to survive and to maintain their power. So I actually think that we may be able to make some real steps in the right direction that would have been previously unimaginable. And Trump may be the kind of guy who can actually get that stuff through. Whereas maybe if we had a Democrat in, it would just get totally roadblocked by by people like Mitch McConnell. So I don't expect in the most likely case that it's going to be what you and I both think would be most effective, which is recurring payments that aren't, you know, bureaucratic or whatever. But it'll be better than what we did in 2008 in my most likely scenario. It's not just going to be corporate bailouts. There will be some individual aspect to it. And hopefully that moves us in the direction of, you know, better social safety net and a more dynamic economy moving forward. Yeah, I see a lot of parallels to the worst thing we could do right now is do the Herbert Hoover approach, 1929, just kind of like, all right, well, stock market's gone to shit. I guess we'll just kind of let the, you know, I think the, the metaphor I've heard is you, you have to let a forest fire burn away the mm-hmm. rotten wood or whatever to allow new trees to grow. Great. But what happens to all the chipmunks and squirrels and rabbits yeah. and that have trees collapsing on them and killing them? Like, you know, you gotta, right. you need to have some kind of, um, got to give them so, new forest homes in the meantime until they can yeah, the forest regrows. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, exactly. Italy has already suspended rent payments and mortgage payments. I wouldn't be surprised if that were to come eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is touching on something we talked about earlier, which is that it's beneficial to limit uh, the accrual of gains from pure rent seeking. So mm-hmm. right now, it's we need the money that's going into rent to be circulating through the economy to keep things going and moving. That means that people that, you know, are collecting rent, like large scale land, you know, uh, landlords or, you know, real estate investment trusts or, um, or, you know, other similar entities need to take a hit mm-hmm. for a while, but that's okay. As long as their main asset is being protected as long as they have enough money to maintain the real estate and offset some of the loss in you know asset value and continue their operations then yeah they should take the hit i mean it will keep society healthier overall it will mm-hmm. keep the economy here overall yeah i mean i've heard some politicians talk about pausing mortgage payments i haven't heard any of them talk about pausing rent and it seems like rent would almost be would be more important than mortgages because the people who are hardest hit these aren't people that own real estate properties these are people that probably pay rent that is month to month and 
you know, they only come up with the money each month that they're going to have to pay at the end of the month. So those yeah. are the people we need to really help first. Yeah. And I guess uh, on my most likely on a health side, I am optimistic that I don't think it will end up being as bad as it is in Italy mm-hmm. on a per person basis. And it seems like there are some genetic factors, cultural factors that feed Smoke. into yeah, smoking, how much they interact with each other. But also there was one story I saw where a single Italian family, I think it was Italian-American, it was like seven members of this one family died, yeah. not only got coronavirus, but died from it. Yeah. And when I you think it. about the mathematical probability of that, it's so low based on what we know that it seems like there must be some genetic factor that makes Italians and certain other types of people more at risk. And since America is such a melting pot and we do have 3x the amount of beds per person that Italy has. Uh, really? I thought we had less. I had read that we had less. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just I just read this the other the other day. So I don't I mean, I don't know how accurate it is, but but uh, it does seem like even though we're not that prepared, it doesn't seem like we're less prepared than Italy. And just by the very fact that their crisis occurred before ours. We get to learn from them. It's not yeah. like they get to learn from us. So for all of those reasons, and for the reason that all of humans brain, humanity's brain power is focused on this one task right now, I'm more optimistic about the likely scenario for the health outcome than I am for the economic outcome. But even in a bad economic situation, I think the people's uh, uh, preferences and the overall sentiment will move in the right direction. Yeah, I think uh, you touched on some interesting points there, which is that like Italy has higher smoking rates. Mm-hmm. The rate of interpersonal interaction just on like a the micro micro level, like I don't know, I'm a grumpy Northeasterner and I maintain six <laughs> feet of dip- a distance from everyone, no matter what, um, because, you know, it's mind your own business. It's cold. Uh, <laughs> but like. That, you know, that that might play in. I don't know about genetic factors. I mean, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, there are certainly differences. And all that being said, I've read some pretty harrowing articles about what the disease does to you. It's pretty terrifying. Um, yeah. I would be a young person that gets it. You oh, know? man. And even if you survive, you could be living the rest of your life with 30% lower lung capacity. Yeah. I mean, your, you know, your lung sacs, again, the biologists and medical people here will <laughs> rail at you later for the, but like, uh, your alveoli, um, you know, your little air sacs that, you know, your lung is made up of, um, you know, it seems like the, what the mechanism is that, you know, the virus gets in there and then your immune system, um, reacts against it. Mm-hmm. And then that's what causes inflammation and then like fluid leakage where you have blood seeping into the alveoli and, and fluid seeping in that then those little air sacs can't fill with air. And so then you just get, I mean, you drown. Like gasping for air. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if those if that tissue then kind of goes through fibrosis, then it's, you know, and it's hard and it's not functioning tissue. Um, after a while, then, yeah, I mean, you could come out of it with severely reduced, uh, you know, breathing capability, which right. is terrible. Yeah, so all that's to say that even <laughs> though the economy is going to be really in a rough spot, 
it's for a good reason, which is to save lives. And that's the most important thing right now is to minimize the loss of life. Do you have any other final thoughts for, for listeners or any final thoughts on this crisis? Yeah, two things. Um, one thing, maybe three things. Uh, you know, the first is uh, the point of an economy is to make people's lives better, right? Hmm. Um, our economy has been developing from pre-industrial right now, to, or before, to industrial, and things have generally gotten better. Food's more readily available. You can have medical, you know, access. Um, technology's gotten better. An economy exists to make people's lives better. So you have to weigh how many people's lives you're willing to sacrifice right. um, versus people's immediate comforts. Well, well also, GDP has been going up while life expectancy has been going down. So clearly yeah. we don't have the right metrics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's something screwed up there. Um, two is be careful what happens and what flies under the radar when everyone's paying attention to the pandemic, you know, all of our mm. brain power, like you said, is focused on solving this pandemic. That shouldn't mean that people in a criminal proceeding are detained indefinitely mm -hmm. because we've seen how that happens. The Patriot Act is still authorized. That's a 20 that's legislation that's almost 20 years old now um, and was passed immediately after 2001. And we're dealing with the repercussions of that. You know, 2013, Edward Snowden revealing that the NSA was just collecting everyone's data. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, we, you need to be extremely careful about what's going through and be do not be so susceptible to fear. Be wary, be cautious, but don't just give up things willy nilly. Um, and then the third is be optimistic and be willing to adapt and to change what your social interactions are day to day. You know, maybe sports becomes less of a thing for, you know, people. I mean, I'm mm. not saying as like hoping it. I, I like sports, but like you do have to be willing to adapt and we need to change our social customs to adapt to the material reality that there's a virus that makes you froth pink blood out of your mouth if you get it. <laughs> um, and it's severe enough. Um, yeah. And that, you know, hopefully we can come out on the other side of this with renewed optimism, faith in institutions to actually solve problems and then we can turn that on other problems that affect everyone on the planet, whether it's another virus, whether it's some other sickness, whether it's famine, whether it's climate change. Um, we're coming to a reckoning. Yeah. <laughs> like Red King, right? uh, I'm sorry, that's a great becoming. I don't know if uh, that's gonna, that reference is <laughs> well, Anyway. Um, no, I love that. Those are really good points to end on. So. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, taking the time, Brett. It's yeah, been man, good as always, and I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about as things move closer and in the political sphere when it really comes down to Joe versus Trump. That'll be interesting to cover, although it it all seems fairly unimportant with you know everything going on right now. We, are all we got all the time in the world. Yeah. <laughs> so. Awesome. Yeah, and thank you to our listeners. This has been the future of the U.S. economy. And what will inevitably happen? The past, the present, and the future. Our computer is picking up a strange sound.